Hey everyone, welcome to the Latent Space Podcast. This is Alessio, partner and CTO and resident at Decibel Partners, and I'm joined by my co-host Swix, writer and editor of Latent Space. Hey, and we are here with Tianxi Chen, or TQ as people call him, <laughs> who is assistant professor in ML Computer Science at CMU, Carnegie Mellon University, also helping to run Catalyst Group, also chief technologist of OctoML. You wear many hats. Are those, uh, you know, your, your primary identities these days? Of course, of course. I'm also, you know, uh, very enthusiastic open source. So I'm also a VP and PRC member of the Apache TVM project and so on. But yeah, these are the things I've been up to so far. Yeah. You also created Apache TVM, XG Boost, and MXNet. And we can cover any of those in any amount of detail. But maybe what's one thing about you that people might not learn from your official bio or LinkedIn like, you know, on, the, on the personal side? Let me say, yeah, so normally why I do, I really love coding, even though like I'm trying to run all those things. So one thing that I keep a habit on is I try to do sketchbooks. I have a book, like real sketchbooks to draw down nice. the design diagrams and the, the sketchbooks. I keep sketching over the years and now I have like three or four of them. And it's kind of a usually a fun experience of thinking the design through and also seeing how open source project evolves and also looking back at the sketches that we had in the past to say, you know, oh, these ideas really turn into code nowadays. How many sketchbooks did you get through to build all this stuff? I mean, if one person alone built one of those projects, it would be a very accomplished engineer. Like you built like three of these. What's that process like for you? Like, is the sketchbook like the start and then you think about the code or like? Yeah. So, so usually I start sketching on high level architectures right? and also in a project that works for over years, we also start to think about, you know, new directions. Like, of course, generative AI language model comes in, how it's going to evolve. So normally I would say it takes like one book a year. Roughly at that rate, it's usually fun to, I find it's much easier to sketch things out and then give the more like a high level architectural guide for some of the future items. Yeah. Have That's you fun. ever published this uh, sketchbooks? Cause I think people would be very interested on, at least on a historical basis. Like this well, is the track where XG Boost <laughs> yeah. was born, you know? Yeah, not really. I started sketching like after actually, so, so that, that's the kind of missing piece, but a lot of the design details in TVM are actually part of the books that I, I try to keep a record of. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to publish them and uh, publish something in the show notes. Uh, maybe you can uh, get, grab a little snapshot for, for visual aid. Sounds good. Yeah. And yeah, talking about Xtrude Boost. So a lot of people in the audience might know it's a gradient boosting library, probably the most popular out there. And it became super popular because many people started using them in like a machine learning competitions. And I think there's like a whole Wikipedia page of like all state-of-the-art models that use XGBoost and like it's a really long list. Yeah. When you were working on it, so we just had Tree Dao, who's the creator of a Flash Attention on the podcast. Yeah. And yeah. I asked him this question. It's like, when you were building Flash Attention, did you know that like almost any transform race model will use it? And so I asked the same question to you when you were coming up with XGBoost, like, could you predict it would be so popular or like what was the creation process? And when you published it, what, what did you expect? We have no idea. Like uh, actually the original reason that we built that library is that at that time, uh, Deep Learning just came out. Like uh, that was the time where uh, AlexNet just came out. And uh, one of the ambitious mission that myself and my advisor, Carl Skastran, then is we want to think about, you know, try to test the hypothesis. Can we find alternatives to deep learning models because because then you know there are other alternatives like you know support vector machines linear models and of course tree-based models and our question was if you build those models with and feed them with big enough data because usually like one of the key characteristics of deep learning is that they are taking a lot of data right so we will be able to get the same amount of performance that's a hypothesis we're setting our test of course if you look at now right that's the wrong hypothesis but as a byproduct, what we find out is that you know most of the gradient boosting library out there is not efficient enough for us to test that hypothesis. So so I happen to had quite a bit of experience of in the past of building gradient boosting trees uh, and their variants. So so effective action boost was kind of like a, a byproduct of that hypothesis testing testing. At that time, I'm also competing a bit in data science challenges. Like I, I worked on KDD Cup 
and then Kaggle can become bigger, right? So I kind of think you know, maybe it's becoming useful to others. One of my friends convinced me to try to do a Python binding of it. That tends to be like a very good decision, right? To effectively, initially when we build it, we, we feel like you know, maybe a command line interface is okay. And then we have a Python binding, we have R bindings. And then it realized, you know, it started to getting interesting. People started contributing different perspectives, like visualization and so on. So we, we start to, you know, push a bit more onto, you know, building distributed support to make sure that it works on any platform and so on. And even at that time point, like uh, when I talked to Carlos, my advisor later, he said he never anticipated that we'll get to that level of success. And actually, why I push for gradient boosting tree is interesting. Like at that time, he also disagreed. Like, he he thinks that maybe we should go for kernel machines then. And huh. uh, turns out, you know, actually we are both wrong in some sense. And deep neural network was the king in the hill. But at least the gradient boosting direction getting to something fruitful. Interesting. I'm always curious when it comes to these improvements. Like, what's the design process in terms of like coming up with it and how much of it is a collaborative with like other people that you're working with versus like trying to be, you know, obviously mm-hmm. in academia is like very paper driven, kind of research yep. driven. I would say the actual boost improvement at that time point was more on like, you know, I'm trying to figure out, right. But, but it's combining lessons. Before that, I did work on some of the other libraries on like a, on matrix factorization. That was like my first open source experience. Nobody know about it because you'll find likely if you go and try to search for the package of SVD feature, you'll find some like a SVN repo that's somewhere. It's actually being used for some of recommender system packages. So I'm trying to apply some of the previous lessons there and trying to combine them. The later projects like uh, MXNet and then TVM is much, much more collaborative you know, in a sense that, uh, but of course, XGBoost has become bigger, right? So we, when we started that project, it's myself. And then we have, it's, it's really amazing to see people coming in. Like we have Michael, who was a lawyer and he, now he's, he works on the, the AI space as well on contributing visualizations. And then we have people from our community contributing different things. So, so actually boost even today, right? This community of committers uh, driving the mm-hmm. project. So it's definitely something collaborative and moving forward on getting some of the things continuously improved for our community. Let's talk a bit about TVM too, because we got a lot of things to run through in this episode. I would like that at some point, uh, I'd love to talk about this comparison between sort of XGBoost or, or sort of tree-based type AI or machine learning uh, compared to deep learning. Because uh, I think there is some a lot of interest around, I guess, merging the two disciplines, right? Um, and we can talk talk more about that. I don't know where to insert that, by the way. So yeah, we can come back to it later. Now. Yeah, actually, why I said, you know, you know, when we test hypothesis, the hypothesis is wrong. It's kind of, I would say it's partially wrong, right? Because the hypothesis we want to test now is, you know, can you run tree-based models on image classification tasks? Where deep learning is certainly the no-brainer right now today, right? But if you try to run it on tabular data, still, like, you'll find that most people opt for tree-based models. And, uh, and th- there's a reason for that in a sense that, you know, when you are looking at tree-based models, the decision boundaries are naturally rules that you're looking at, right? And they also have nice properties like, you know, being able to be agnostic to scale of input and be able to automatically compose feature together. And I know there are attempts, there are attempts on, you know, building uh, neural network models that uh, works for tabular data. And I also sometimes follow them. I do feel like, uh, it's good to have a bit of diversity in the, in the modeling space. Actually, boost actually, when we're building TVM, we build cost models for the programs. Actually, we are using actually boost for, for that as well. So I still think tree based model is going to be quite relevant because first of all, they, it's really to get it work out of box. And also, uh, you will be able to get a bit of interpretability and control like in you know, a monotonicity. And so on. So yes, it's still going to be relevant. I also sometimes keep coming back to think about are there possible improvements that we can build on top of these models? And definitely I feel like it's a space that can have some of the potential in the future. Yeah. Are there any current projects that you would call out as promising in terms of merging the two, I guess, directions? <laughs> I think there are projects that tries to bring like a transformer type model for tabular data. Right. I, I don't remember specifics of them, but uh, I think even nowadays, if you look at the people's, what people are using, like tree based models, still one of their 
toolkit, right? So, so I think, uh, maybe eventually it's not even a replacement. It will be just an ensemble of models that uh, you can call. Yeah. Perfect. Next step about three years after XGBoost, Boost, you built this thing called TVM, which is now uh, a very popular compiler framework for models. Let's talk about, so this came out about at the same time as Onyx. So I think it would be great if you could maybe give a little bit of an overview of like how the two things work together because it's kind of like the model oh, then I goes see. to Onyx, then goes to the TVM. Yeah. But I think a lot of people don't understand the, the nuances. I can get a bit of backstory on that. Right? So so actually that's kind of an Asian history before ActuBoost. I worked on deep learning for, for like uh, two years or three years. I get a master before I, I start my PhD. And during my master, my thesis focused on you know, applying convolutional restricted Boltzmann machine for ImageNet classification. Like that, that is the thing I'm working on. And that was before AlexNet moment. So effectively, I had to handcraft NVIDIA CUDA kernels on, I think it's GTX 2070 card. I have a 2070 card. And it took me about six months to get one model working. And eventually that model is not so good. And uh, no, we should have picked a, a better model, but, uh, but that was like a, a Asian history that, uh, that when I really get me into this deep learning field. And of course, eventually we find, you know, it didn't work out. So I, I, in my master, I, in the end, I, I ended up working on recommend assistant, which got me a paper and I applied and get a PhD. But I always want to come back to, <laughs> to work on the deep learning field. So after actually boost, I think um, I started to work with some of folks on this particular MXNet. That at that time it was like the frameworks are Cafe, Ciano, Torch, uh, PyTorch haven't yet come out, and uh, and uh, and we're we're really working hard to optimize for performance, right, on GPUs. At that time, I find you know it's really hard to even for NVIDIA GPU, right? It took me six months, and then it's amazing to see like you know on different hardwares how hard it is to go and optimize. Code for the platforms that that are interesting. So so get, that gets me thinking. Like you know, can we build something more generic and automatic, so that uh, you know I don't need an entire team of so many people to go and build those frameworks. So so that's the motivation of starting working on TVM. There is really to lower the bar of machine learning engineering needed to support deep learning models on. The platforms that uh, that we're interested in, yeah. So, so I think it started a bit earlier than from, than Onyx, but when it's got announced, I think it's in a similar time period, right? At that time, so yeah. So overall, how it works is that you know TVM, you will be able to take a subset of machine learning program that are represented in what we call computational graph. Nowadays, we can also represent it as a loop level program. You ingest from your machine learning models. Usually, you know, you have model formats Onyx, right? Or in PyTorch, they have like FX tracer that allows you to trace the FX graph. And then it goes through TVM. We also realized that over well, years, it needs to be more customizable. So we will be able to perform some of the compilation optimizations, like fusion operator together, doing smart memory plannings, and more importantly, generate low level code. So that, you know, works for NVIDIA and also is portable to other GPU backends, even non-GPU backends out there. Yeah. So, so that's a project actually has been my primary focus over the past few years. And uh, it's great to see, you know, how it started from where I think we are the early, very early initiator of machine learning compilation. I remember there was a visiting day. One of the students asked me, you know, are you still working on deep learning frameworks? I tell them that, you know, I'm working on ML compilation. And, and they said, okay, compilation, how, that sounds very Asian. Or, or, you know, it sounds like a very old, old field. <laughs> and why are we working on this? And, and now it's starting to get more tractions. Like if you say torch compile and other things, I'm really glad to see this field starting picking up. And, uh, and also we are continuing innovating in here. I think the other thing that I notice is, you know, it's kind of like a big jump in terms of um, area focus to go from like mm-hmm. XG Boost to like TVM. You know, it's kind of like okay. a different part of the of the stack. Yeah. Why did you decide to do that? And I think the other thing about compiling to like different uh, GPUs and eventually CPUs too. Did you already see kind of like the some of the strain that models could have, like just being focused on one? Runtime, you know, only being on CUDA on like uh, that, and yeah, yeah so how much of that went into it? I think it's less about trying to get impact, more about you know 
wanted to have fun. Like as I like to hack code, I had really fun hacking CUDA code. And uh, of course, being able to generate CUDA code is cool, right? But but you know now after being able to generate CUDA code, okay. By the way, you can do it on other platforms. Isn't that amazing? So it's more of that attitude to get me started on this. And also, I think when we look at different researchers, I, myself is more like I think a problem solver type. So I like to look at a problem and say, you know, okay, what kind of tools we need to solve that problem? So regardless, you know, it could be. Building better models. For example, when we build attributes, we build certain regularizations into it so that it's more robust. It also means building system optimizations, writing low-level code, um, maybe you know trying to write assembly and build compilers and so on. So, so as long as they solve the problem, definitely go and try to do them together. And I also see it's a common trend right now. Like uh, if you want to be able to solve. A machine learning problems is no longer at algorithm layer, right? You kind of need to solve it from both algorithm data and systems angle. And this entire field of machine learning system, I think, is kind of emerging. And that's now a conference around it. And it's really good to see a lot more people are starting to look into this. Yeah. Are you talking about ICML or something else? So machine learning and systems, right? So so not only machine learning, but machine learning and system. So that's a uh-huh. conference called MLSYS. It's a definitely a smaller community than SMO, but but it's it's I think it's also also emerging growing community where you know people are talking about you know what's implications of building system for machine learning, right? And how do you go and optimize things around it and co-design models and system together. Yeah, and you were you were area chair for ICML in Europe as well. So you've just had a lot of uh, conference and community organization experience. Is that also like an important part of your work? Well, it's kind of expected for academic, <laughs> if I hold an academic job, right? You need to do services for a community. Okay, great. Your most recent venture in MLSYS mm-hmm. <laughs> is going to the, uh, the phone mm-hmm. with MLC LLM. You announced this in April. I have it on my, on my phone. It's great. Good, I'm, yeah. I'm running Llama 2, Vicuña. Uh, I don't know what other models that you, you offer, but maybe you could just kind of describe your journey into MLC. And I don't know how this, coincides with your work at CMU. Is, is that yes. some kind of outgrowth? I think it's more like a, a focused effort that we want in the area of machine learning compilation, right? So so it's kind of related to what we built in TVM. So when we built TVM, it was five years ago, right? So, and a lot of things happened. We, we, we built the end-to-end machine learning compiler that works, the first one that works, but then we capture a lot of lessons there. So then we are building a second iteration called TVM Unity, that allows us to be able to, you know, allow ML engineers to be able to quickly capture the new model and our demand building optimizations for them. And uh, MOCLM is kind of like, an MOC is uh, it's more like a vertical driven organization that we're, we go and build tutorials and go and build uh, projects like LM to solutions so that to really show like, okay, you can take machine learning compilation technology and apply it and bring something fun forward. Yeah. So yes, it runs on phones, which is really cool. But the goal here is not only making it run on phones, right? The goal is making it deploy universally. So we, we do run on, you know, Apple, uh, M2 Max, the 7 billion, 17 billion models. Actually, on a single batch inference more recently on CUDA, we get, uh, I think the most, the best performance you can get out there already on the four bit inference. And then actually, as I alluded earlier before the podcast, we just had a result on AMD. And uh, on single batch, actually, we can get uh, uh, the latest AMD GPU. Uh, this is a consumer card. It can get to about eighty uh, percent of the f- forty nineteen. So Nvidia's best consumer card out there. So so it's not yet like you know on par, right? but uh, thinking about uh, how diversity and what you can enable and the previous things you can get on that card is really amazing. That uh, what you can do with this kind of technology. So one thing I, I'm a little bit confused by is mm-hmm. that most of these models are in PyTorch, but you're okay, running yeah. this inside of TVM. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Was there any fundamental change that you needed to do? Or yeah. was this basically the fundamental design of TVM? So the idea is that, of course, it, it comes back to program representation. right? So, so effectively, uh, TVM have this program representation called TVM script that uh, contains more like computational graph and operational representation. So yeah, so initially we do need to take a bit of effort of bringing those models onto the program representation that TVN support. 
usually there are a mix of ways, uh, depending on color model you're looking at. For example, for vision models and stable diffusion models, usually we can just do tracing that takes PyTorch model on the TVM. That part is still being robustified so that we can bring more model in. On language model tasks, actually what we do is we directly build some of the model constructors and try to directly map from hugging phase models. The goal is, you know, if you have a hugging phase configuration, we will be able to bring that in and, and apply optimization on them. So one fun thing about model compilation is that, you know, your optimization don't happen only at a source language, right? For example, if you write PyTorch code, you just go and try to, you know, use better fuse operator at a source code level. Torch compile might help you do a bit of things in there. In most of model compilations, it not only happens at the beginning stage, but we also apply generic transformations in between, also through a Python API. So you can, you can tweak some of that. So that part of optimization helps a lot of uplifting in getting both performance and also portability on the environment. And another thing that uh, we do have is what we call universal deployment. So if you get the MO program into this TVM script format, where there are functions, right, that, that takes in tensor and output tensor, we will be able to have a way to compile it so that we will be able to load the function in any of the language runtime that TVM supports. So for example, you could load it in JavaScript, and that's a JavaScript function that you, you can take in tensors and output tensors. If you're loading you know, Python, of course, and C++ and Java. So, so the goal there is really bring the ML model to the language that uh, people care about and be able to run them on a platform they, they like. Yeah. It strikes me that, I, so I've talked to a lot of compiler people, mm-hmm. but you don't have a traditional compiler background. You're inventing your own discipline called machine learning compilation, or MLC. Do you think that this will be a bigger field going forward? First of all, I, I do work with the people working on compilation as well. Right, you're not the right? only. Yeah, yeah. So, so there are, you know, with that, we're also taking inspirations from a lot of early innovations in in the field. Like, for example, TVM. Initially, we take a lot of inspirations from Halide, which is just like image processing compiler. Uh, and also, of course, since then we have evolved quite a bit so that the you know to focus on the machine learning related compilations. If you look at some of the conference publications, you'll find the machine learning compilation is already kind of a subfield. So if you look at papers in both machine learning venues, the MLCs conferences, of course, and also system venues, every year there will be papers around machine learning compilation. And uh, uh, in the compiler conference called CGO, there's the C4MO workshop that also kind of uh, trying to focus on this area. So definitely it's already starting to gain traction and becoming a field. I wouldn't claim that I invented this field, but definitely, you know, I help to work with a lot of folks there and I try to bring a perspective. Of course, you know, trying to learn a lot from the compiler, compiler optimizations as well as trying to bring in knowledges in, you know, machine learning and assistance together. So we had a uh, George Hotz on the podcast uh, mm-hmm. a few episodes yep. ago, and he had a lot to say about AMD um, and That's their, right, their yeah. software. So when you think about TVM, mm-hmm. are you still restricted in a way by like the performance of the underlying kernel, so to speak? So like if you're like you know if your target is like a, a CUDA runtime, you still get better performance no matter like TVM kind of helps you get there, but then that level you don't take care of, right? There are two parts in here, right? So first for that is um, the lower level runtime, like you no know, CUDA runtime. And then actually for NVIDIA, a lot of the mood came from their libraries, like Cutlass, UDN, right? Those library optimizations. And also for specialized workloads, actually you can specialize them. Like, because a lot of cases you'll find that if you go and do benchmarks, it's very interesting. Like, like uh, two years ago, if you try to benchmark ResNet, for example, usually the NVIDIA library or will give you the best performance. It's really hard to beat them. But as soon as you start to change the model to something, you know, maybe a, a bit of a variation of ResNet, not for the traditional image net detections, but for lane detection and so on, there will be some room for optimization because people sometimes overfit to benchmarks. These are people go and optimize things, right? So the people overfit, overfit the benchmarks. So that's the largest barrier, like being able to get the low-level kernel libraries, right? In that sense, um, the goal of TVM is actually we try to have a generic layer to both, of course, leverage libraries when available, but also be able to automatically generate libraries when possible. 
So, so in that sense, we are not restricted by you know the libraries that they have to offer. That's why, for example, we will be able to run Apple M2 or WebGPU where there's no library available because we are kind of like automatically generating libraries. That makes it easier to support less well-supported hardware, right? Like, for example, WebGPU is one example from a runtime perspective. AMD, I think, uh, before their Lockham driver was not very well supported. Uh, recently, they are getting good. But even before that, we'll be able to support AMD through this uh, GPU graphics backend called Vulkan, which is not as performant, but gives you a data center port- portability across those hardware. Yeah. And I know we got other MLC stuff to talk about, like WebLLM, but I want to wrap up on the optimization that you're doing. So there's kind of four core things, right? Kernel fusion, which mm-hmm. we talked a bit about in the flash attention episode and the tiny grab mm-hmm. one. Memory planning and loop optimization, I think those are like pretty, you know, self-explanatory. I think the one that people have the most questions about uh, wait, is wait, like... Wait. Can, can, you, can you quickly explain those? <laughs> yeah, go, go yeah, for it. Yeah, so, so there are kind of different things, right? Kernel fusion means that, you know, if you have an operator like convolutions or uh, in the case of transformer like MLP, you have other operators follow that, right? You don't want to launch two GPU kernels. You want to be able to put them together in a smart way, right? In terms of memory planning, it's more about, you know, hey, if you run like Python code, right? Every time when you generate a new array, you are effectively allocating a new piece of memory, right? Of course, PyTorch and other framework try to optimize for you, so there is a smart memory allocator behind the thing. But actually, in a lot of cases, it's much better to statically allocate and plan everything ahead of time. And that's where like a compiler can come in. We need to, uh, first of all, actually for language model, it's much harder because dynamic shape. So you need to be able to what we call symbolic shape chasing. So we, we have like a, a symbolic variable that tells you like the shape of the first tensor is n by 12. And the shape of the third tensor is also n by 12, or maybe it's n times 2 by 12. Also, you don't know what n is, right? But you will be able to know that relation and be able to use that to reason about like fusion and other decisions. So besides this, I think loop transformation is quite important. And it's actually non-traditional. Like originally, if you simply write a code and you want to get a performance, it's very hard. For example, you know, if you write matrix multiply, right? Simplest thing you can do is you do 4IJK CI J plus equal, uh, you know, uh, AIK times BIK. But that code is a hundred times slower than the best available code that you can get. So we do a lot of transformation, like being able to take that original code, trying to put things into shared memory and making use of tensor calls, making use of memory copies and all these. Actually, all these things we also realize that, you know, we cannot do all of them. So we also make the ML compilation framework as a Python package. So that people will be able to continuously improve that part of engineering in a more transparent way. So we find that's very useful actually for us to be able to get good performance very quickly on some of the new models. Like when Lama 2 came out, we'll be able to go and look at the whole, here's the bottleneck and we can go and optimize those. And then the board one being a weight quantization. So everybody wants to know about that. And just to give people like an idea of like the, um, the memory saving, you know, if you're doing like FP32 is like four bytes per parameter and eight is like one byte per parameter. So you can like really shrink down the memory footprint. What are like some of the trade-offs there? Like how do you figure out what like the right target is and like what are like the precision trade-offs too? Right now, a lot of people like also we also mostly use int4 now for language models. So, so that really shrinks things down a lot, right? And more recently, actually, we started to think that, uh, in, at least in MLC, we don't want to have a strong opinion on what kind of quantization we want to bring because there are so many research in the field. So what we can do is we can allow developers to customize the quantization they want, but we still bring the optimum code for them. So, so we, we, are, we are working on this uh, item called bring your own quantization effectively to be able to hopefully, you know, uh, MLC will be able to support more quantization format. And definitely, I think there are, there's an open field that's being explored. Like, can you bring more sparsities? Can you quantize activations as much as possible and so on? And it's, it's going to be something that's going to be relevant for quite a while. 
You mentioned something I wanted to double back on, which is most people use in for through language models. This is actually not obvious to me. Are you talking about the GGML type people or even the train, the, the researchers who are training the models also using oh, it for? Sorry. So I'm mainly talking about inference, not training, right? So, so yeah, when, okay. when I'm doing like a training, of course, um, int for is harder, right? Maybe you could do some form of mixed type precisions for, for inference. Um, what, uh, I think int for is, is kind of like, a, um, a lot of cases you will be able to get away with int for in a lot of cases. And actually that does bring a lot of savings in terms of like the memory overhead and so on. Yeah, that's great. Let's talk a bit about maybe the, yeah, GGML. There, then mm-hmm. there's like Mojo. Yeah. How should people think about MLC? Like, how do all these things play together? You know, I think GGML is focused on kind of like, model level re-implementation mm-hmm. and like improvements. Mojo is like a language superset. You're more at the compiler level. Do you all work together? Like do people choose between them? So I think in this case, right, both I think it's great to say the ecosystem becomes so rich with so many different ways. Right. So in our case, I would say GGMO is more like, you know, you're implementing something from scratch in C, right? So that gives you ability to go and customize each of a particular hardware backend. But then you will need to write from a CUDA kernels and you write optimization from AMD and so on. So, so the kind of engineering effort is a bit more broadened in that sense. Module, I've not looked at specific details yet. I think it's good to start to say, you know, it's a language, right? And there's also, I believe there will also be machine learning compilation technologies behind it. So, so it's good to say, you know, interesting place in there. In the case of MLC, our case is that we do not want to have an opinion on how, where, which language people want to develop, deploy things on. And we also realize that actually there are two phases. We want to be able to develop and optimize your model. By optimization, I mean, you know, really bring best CUDA kernels and do some of the machine learning engineering in there. And then that's a phase where you want to deploy it as a part of the app. So if you look at the space, you'll find that GGMO is more like, you know, I'm going to develop optimize in the C language, right? And then most of the low level languages they have. And module is that you want to develop and optimize in module, right? And you deploy in module. In fact, that's, that's the philosophy they want, they want to push for. And in our case, we find that actually if you want to develop models, Machine learning community likes Python. Python is a language that uh, you should focus on. So in the case of MLC, we really want to be able to enable, not only be able to, you know, just define your model in Python, that's very common, right? But also do ML optimization, like engineering optimization, you know, CUDA kernel optimization, memory planning, all those things in Python that makes you customizable and so on. But when you do deployment, we realize that people want a bit of universal flavor. If you are a web developer, you want JavaScript, right? If you, if you want, if you are, uh, maybe embedded system person, maybe you like prefer C++ or C or Rust. And people sometimes do like Python in a lot of cases. So in our, in the case of MLC, we really want to have this vision of, you know, you optimize, build a generic optimizations in Python and you deploy that universally onto the environments that, that uh, people like. That's a great. Perspective and comparison, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I, I wanted to make sure that we cover is that I think you are one of these like, emerging set of academics mm-hmm. that also very much focus on your artifacts of delivery. You of know, it's something we talked about to tree is that he, he was very focused on his GitHub. And obviously you treated XG Boost like a product, you know, and then now you, you're publishing an iPhone app. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. What is his thinking about academics getting involved in shipping products? I think there are different ways of making impact, right? Definitely, you know, there are academics that are writing papers and building, building insights for people so that people can build product on top of them. In my case, I think the particular field I'm working on machine learning systems, I feel like uh, really we need to be able to get it to the hand of people so that uh, really we see the problem, right? And we, we show that we can solve the problem. And, and it's a different way, it's a different way of making impact. And uh, there are academics that are doing similar things, like you know, if you look at uh, some of the people from Berkeley, right? That they, a few years they they will come up with big open source projects. Certainly, you know, I think it's just a healthy ecosystem to have different ways of making impacts. And I feel like really be able to do open source and work with work with open source community is really rewarding because we have real problem to work on when we, when we build our research, actually those research bring together and 
people will be able to make use of them. And we also start to see interesting research challenges that we wouldn't otherwise say, right? If we, if we just uh, trying to do a prototype and so on. So I feel like uh, it's it's something that. It's one interesting way of making impact, make contributions. Yeah, you definitely have a lot of impact there. And having experienced publishing Mac stuff before, mm-hmm. the Apple App Store is no joke. Uh, it is the hardest compilation, <laughs> human compilation effort. So one thing that we definitely wanted to cover is uh, running in the browser. You have a 70 billion parameter model running in the browser. That's right. Yeah. Uh, can you just talk about how? <laughs> yeah, of course. So. Um, I think that there are a few elements that need to come in. Right? First of all, you know, uh, we do need a MacBook, the latest one, like M2 Max, because you need a, the memory to be big enough to cover that. So for the 17 million model, it will takes you about, I think, 50 gigas of RAM. So the, you know, M2 Max, the upper version will be able to run it, right? And um, it also leverages machine learning compilation. Again, what we are doing is the same, like whether it's running on iPhone, on on server class GPUs, on AMDs, or on MacBook, we all go through that same MOC pipeline. Of course, in certain cases, maybe we'll, we'll do a bit of customization iteration for, for either ones. And then it runs on the browser runtime, there's this package of web IOM, so that will effectively... So what we do is we, we will take that original model and compile to what we call web GPU. And then the web IM will be to pick it up. And the web GPU is this latest GPU technology that, that uh, major browsers are shipping right now. So you can get it in Chrome for, for them already. That allows you to be able to access your native GPUs from a browser. And then effectively that language model is just invoking the web GPU kernels. Through there. So we actually, when the Llama 2 came out, initially we asked the question about, you know, can you run 17 billion on a MacBook? That was the question we we're asking. So first we actually, uh, Jinlu, who is the engineer pushing this, he, he, he get uh, 17 billion on a MacBook. We had a CLI version. So in the MOC, you will be able to, that runs through metal accelerator. So effectively you use the metal programming language to get, uh, the GPU acceleration. So we find, okay, it works for the MacBook. Then we ask, you know, mm, we had a web GPU backend. Why, why not try it there? Right. So, so, so we just try it out. And it's really amazing to see like, you know, everything up and running and, and actually it runs smoothly in that case. So, so I do think there are some kind of interesting use cases already in this, right? Because everybody have a browser. You don't need to install anything. I think it doesn't make sense yet to really run a 17 billion model on a browser because you kind of need to be able to download the weight and so on. But I, I think we are, we are getting there. Like uh, effectively the most powerful models you will be able to run on consumer devices. It's kind of really amazing. And also in a lot of cases that might be use cases, for example, if I'm going to build a chatbot that, uh, you know, that I talk to it and answers questions, maybe some of the component, like, you know, the voice to text could run on the client side. And um, so there are a lot of possibilities of being able to have something hybrid, like that contains the edge component and something that runs on a server. Do these browser models have then a way for applications to hook into them? So if I'm using, say, you know, you can use OpenAI or like you can use the local local model. Of course. So uh, right now, actually, we are building. So so there's a npm package called WebIOM, right? So that you know you will be able to if you want to embed it on, onto your web app, you will be able to directly depend on WebIM and it's, you will be able to use it. We are also having a, a REST API that's openly compatible. So so that REST API, I think right now it, it it's actually running on native backend. So that for example, if a CUDA server is faster to run on native backend, but also we have a web GPU version of it that you can go and run. So yeah, so we, we do want to be able to have easier integrations with um, existing applications and open API is certainly one way to do that. Yeah, this is great. Uh, I actually did not know there's an NPM package that makes it very, very easy to try out and use. Um, I want to actually, one thing I, I'm unclear about is the chronology, because as far as I know, Chrome shipped WebGPU the same time that you shipped WebLLM. Okay, yeah. So did you have like some kind of secret chat with Chrome? The good news is that Chrome team is, is doing a very good job of trying to have early release. So although the official shipment of the Chrome Web GPU is the same time of WebIM, right? Actually, you will be able to try out Web GPU technology in Chrome. They are unstable version called Canary. About, uh, I think 
as early as two years ago, that's a WebGPU version. Of course, it's getting better. So we had TVM-based WebGPU backend two years ago. Um, of course, at that time, there's no language models. It's running on less interesting, well, still quite interesting models. And then this year, we really started to say it's getting matured and performance keeping up. So, so we have a more serious push of bringing the language model compatible runtime onto the web, web GPU. I think you agree that the hardest part or is, is the model download. Has there been conversations about a one-time model download and sharing between all the apps that might use this API? That is a great point. I think it's already supported kind of already in some sense that, you know, for example, when we download the model, WebLM will cache it onto a special Chrome cache. So if a different web app uses the same WebLM JavaScript package, you don't need to re-download the model again. So there's already something there, right? But of course, you have to download the model once, at least, to be able to use it. Yeah. Okay. One more thing, just in general, before we're, we're about to zoom out to AutoAI. The, the, the last question is, uh, you're not the only project working on, I guess, local models, That's right. uh, alternative models. Uh, there's GPT for all, there's Olama mm-hmm. that this mm-hmm. recently came out, and there's a bunch of these. Yep. What would be your advice to them on what's a valuable problem to work on and what is just thin wrappers around GGML? Like, <laughs> what is, what is, what are the interesting problems in this space, basically? I think making API better is certainly something useful, right? And in general, one thing that we, we do try to push very hard on is this idea of easier universal deployment. So we are also looking forward to actually have more integration with MOC. That's why we're trying to build API like WebRMs, other things. So we're also looking forward to collaborate with all those ecosystems and working, uh, working support to bring in models more universally and be able to also, you know, keep up the best performance when possible here, more push button way. So as we mentioned in the beginning, you are also the co-founder of OctoML. Recently, OctoML released OctoAI which is a compute service basically focuses on optimizing model runtimes and acceleration and compilation. What has been the evolution there? So Octo started as kind of like a traditional MLOps tool where like people were building their own models and like you help them on that side. And then it seems like now most of the market is shifting to starting from like pre-trained generative models. Yeah, what has been that that experience for you, and like uh, what you've seen the market evolve, and how did you decide to to release Octo AI? One thing that we find out is that on one hand, it's it's really easy to go and get something up running, right? So if you start to consider there's so many possible availabilities and scalability issues, and uh, and even integration issues, since becoming kind of interesting and complicated, so really want to make sure to help people to get that part easy, right? And now. A lot of things if we look at the customers we talk to and the market, certainly generative AI is something that uh, that is very interesting. So so that is something that uh, we really hope to help elevate and uh, also building on top of technology we build to enable things, you know, like a portability across hardwares and you will be able to not worry about this specific details, right? Just focus on getting the model out. We'll try to work on infrastructure and other things that uh, that helps on the other end. And when it comes to getting um, optimization on the runtime, I see when I we run like an early adopters community, and like most enterprises, issue is like how to actually run these these models. You know, do you see that as like a one of the big bottlenecks now? I think like a few years ago, it was like, well, we don't have a lot of like machine learning talent, we're going to develop our own models, you know, versus now it's like there's these great models you can use, but like, I don't know how to run them efficiently. That depends on how you define by run it, right? So for (laughs) example, you know, it's on one hand, it's easy to download even MLC, like you download it, you you run on a laptop, but then there's also different decisions, right? What if you are trying to serve a larger user request? What if that request changes, right? What if the availability of hardware changes? Like right now, it's really hard to get the latest hardware on video, unfortunately, because everybody's trying to work on the things using the hardware that's out there, right? So I think there are kind of like a, when the definition of run changes, the kind of like a, there are a lot more questions around things. And also in a lot of cases, it's not only about running models, it's also about being able to solve problems around them. Like how do you manage your model locations and how do you make sure that you get your model close to your ex- uh, execution environment more efficiently so definitely a lot of engineering challenges out there that we hope to elevate yeah and also you know if you if you think about the future definitely i feel like right now the technology 
given the technology and the kind of hardware availability we have today, uh, we will need to make use of all the possible hardware available out there. You know, that will include mechanisms for cutting down costs, bringing something to edge and cloud in a more natural way. So I, I feel like it's still, this is a very early stage of where we are, but it's already good to say like a lot of interesting progress. Yeah, that's awesome. I would love, I don't know how much you can go in depth into it, mm-hmm. but what does it take to actually abstract all of this from the end user? You know, like they don't need to know what GPUs you run, what cloud you're running them on. You you take yep. all of that away. What was that like as an engineering challenge? So I think that there are engineering challenges on effective. First of all, you will need to be able to support all the kind of hardware backend you have, right? On one hand, if you look at the media library, you'll find very surprisingly, not too surprisingly, most of the latest libraries works well for on the latest GPU. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but there are other GPUs out there in the cloud as well. So certainly being able to have know-hows and being able to do model optimization is one thing, right? Also infrastructures on, on being able to scale things up, locate models. And in a lot of cases, we do find that on typical models, it also requires kind of vertical iterations. So it's not about, you know, build a silver bullet and that silver bullet is going to solve all the problems. It's more about, you know, we're building a product. We'll work with the users and we find out there are interesting opportunities in, in a certain point. And when our engineer will go and go and solve that and it will automatically reflect it in the, in a service. Awesome. We can jump into the lightning round until I don't know, Sean, if you have more questions or TQ, if you have more stuff you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to touch on. Yeah, we have talked a lot. So, yeah. We always would like to ask, like, you know, did you have a commentary on other parts of AI and ML that uh, is interesting to you? So right now, I think one thing that we are really pushing hard for is this question about how can how far can we bring in open source, right? I'm kind of like a hacker and I really like to put things together. So I think it is unclear in the future of what the future of AI looks like. On one hand, it could be possible that you know you just have a few big players, you just try to talk to those those bigger language models and that can do everything, right? On the other hand, one of the things that Welling Academic had really excited and pushing for that's one reason why I'm pushing for MLC is that can we build something where you have different models? You have personal models that knows the best movie you like, but you also have bigger models that uh, maybe know, know more. And uh, you get those models in that, intact with each other, right? And, and uh, be able to have a wide ecosystem you know, AI agents that helps each person while still be able to do things like personalization. Some, some of them can run locally, some of them of course, running on the cloud and how do they interact with each other. So I think that is, we are in a very exciting time where, you know, the future is yet undecided, but uh, I feel like there's something we can do to shape that future as well. Yeah. <laughs> One more thing, which is uh, something I'm also pursuing, which is, and this kind of goes back into predictions, but also back in your history. Do you have any idea or are you looking out for anything post transformers as far as architecture is concerned? Uh, I think, you know, in a lot of these this cases, you can find there are already problems in models for long context, right? There are state space based models where, like, you know, a lot of some of my colleagues, for example, Albert Gu, he worked on these HIPPO uh, models, right? And then there is an open source version called RWKV. These are like recurrent models that allows you to summarize things. Actually, we are bringing RWKV to MOC as well. So, so maybe you will be able nice. to see one of the models. We actually uh, recorded an episode with uh, one of the RWKV core members. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. It's unclear because there's no academic backing. It's just open source people. Oh, I see. <laughs> so you like the merging of recurrent networks and transformers? I do love to see this model space continue growing, right? And, uh, and I feel like, uh, in a lot of cases, it's just that attention mechanism is getting changed in some sense. So I feel like definitely there are still a lot of things to be explored here. And that is also one reason why we want to keep pushing machine learning compilation because one of the things we are trying to push for is productivity. So that for machine learning engineering, so that you know, as soon as some of the model came out, we will be able to you know empower them onto those environments that's out there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good mission. Okay, very excited to see that Olivia KV and State Space model stuff. I'm hearing increasing chatter about that stuff. Okay, lightning rounds is, is always fun. I'll take the first one. Mm-hmm. Acceleration. What has already happened in AI that you thought would take much longer? Emergence of more like a conversation chatbot ability is something that kind of surprised me before it came out. 
this is like one piece that I feel originally I thought it would take much longer, but yeah, it happens. And, uh, it's funny because like the original like Eliza chatbot was something that goes all the way back in time, right? And then we just suddenly came back again. Yeah, it's, it's always too interesting came back, but with a kind of a different technology in some sense. Yes. Right? So. What about the most interesting unsolved question in AI? That's a hard one, right? So <laughs> I can tell you like what kind of I'm excited about. So so I think that I have always been excited about this idea of continuous learning and lifelong learning in some sense. So so how an AI continues to evolve with the uh, knowledge that being there. It seems that we're much getting much closer with all those latent recent technologies. So being able to be able to develop systems, support and be able to think about, you know, how AI continues to evolve is something that um, I'm really excited about. So specifically, just to double click on this, are you talking about continuous training? That's like a training. I feel like, you know, training adaptation and it's all similar things, right? You want to think about entire life cycle, right? The life cycle of collecting data, training them, fine tuning, and maybe have your local context that getting continuously curated and feed onto models. So I think all these things are interesting and relevant in here. Yeah, I think this is something that people are really asking, you know, right now we have moved a lot into the sort of pre-training phase and off the shelf, you know, model downloads and stuff like that, which seems very counterintuitive compared to the continuous training paradigm that people want. So I guess the last question would be for takeaways. Uh, what's basically one message that you want every listener, every person to remember today? I think it's getting more obvious now, but uh, I think one, one of the things that I always want to mention in my talks is that you know, when you think about AI applications, or originally it's people think about aggressions a lot more. Right? Our aggression models, they are still very important, but usually when, when you build AI applications, it takes you know, both aggression side, the system optimizations, and the data curations, right? So, so it takes like a, a connection of so many facades to be able to bring together AI system and be able to looking at from that holistic perspective is really useful. When we start to build modern AI applications, I think it's going to continue going to be more important in the future. Yeah. Thank you for showing the way on this and honestly, just uh, making things possible that I thought would take a lot longer. So uh, thanks for everything you've, you've done. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming on TQ. Have a good one.